Welcome. We're continuing uh, in our series of messages from the Gospel of John, and we are in the second half of the Gospel where Jesus turns his attention from bearing witness to the world to uh, teaching and instructing his disciples. And I think the running theme in this second half of the Gospel is that we are to abide in him. So uh, we've been talking last week about this idea of the vine and the branches, uh, and you have also might have heard this past week that they finally resolved the defamation trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I don't know if you've heard, uh, but um, this began as a love story, right? It certainly didn't end that way. Uh, there's certainly little in this story today that we would associate with love. Why do you suppose our loves so often go off the rails and end in fiery, devastating disaster? Maybe it's because we don't know how to love. If only there was somebody who knew how to love that could teach us. Well, guess what? You're in luck. God knows how to love, and he wants to teach us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I've titled today's message, Journeying into love. We're in John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 17. Uh, let's get started with verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. In this my Father is glorified that you should bear much fruit and be my disciples. So we're following up on Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, then you're going to bear much fruit because without me, you cannot do anything. You can't do squat on your own. So he's going to flesh out a little more what he's talking about. When he says we need to abide in him and he needs to abide in us, uh, he's going to continue explaining to us what that means. If he is the trunk, the vine, and we are the branch connected to it and finding its fruitfulness in that connection, what does it mean to abide in him? Well, again, he says, if we abide in him, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, Jesus' words, uh, we have in the Gospels many of his teachings registered, so that's definitely words of Jesus. Uh, but I think it's more than just that. Jesus also indicated that the entire scriptures are word of God. And he calls on us to obey what scripture tells us. So this abiding in his word definitely means that we are learning and studying and understanding scripture and letting it pattern our whole lives for us. We are abiding in his word. But it's, there are other ways in which Jesus communicates with us. Uh, prayer. When we talk to him and he whispers things to our soul. Uh, he can communicate to us also through other people around us who are connected to him and abiding in him. They have fruit to bear in our lives that shares with us the word, the message, the communication of Jesus. So abiding in Jesus is more than just uh, talking about him. It's, it's staying within what he is telling us. Listening and becoming permeated with his communication to us. 
staying within the scope of what he tells us. He says, if this is happening, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Now, there are a lot of people who take that second half of the verse and make that a life mission. Ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. And they plead with God for that mansion to live in and for that really cool, fast car and for the career that everybody envies. And they fix their eyes on the most popular, beautiful person and say, I want that person as a spouse. And you ask God for all kinds of stuff. And we don't get what we want. What does that mean? Well, I think we've missed that this is a conditional statement. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you want. What does that mean then? If I'm asking God for stuff and God isn't giving it to me. Well, I think that means that I am not abiding in Christ. And his words have not found purchase in my soul. I'm still asking from the wrong place. I'm still asking from a wrong heart orientation. And inevitably I'm asking for what I should not be asking. God can't give us things that are not good. We may ask for them. But he cannot give them to us. Because he cannot be the one who is uh, putting evil out there. He can only respond to requests that have to do with the good. He says, in this, my Father is glorified. When we're staying put in Jesus, when his words find purchase in our hearts and souls, his Father is glorified. And Jesus talks a lot about glorifying the Father. And we might be uh, misunderstand this situation and think that somehow God has a really low self-esteem and he needs to be constantly reminded of how great he is. Because he's not quite sure he's that great. Uh, I'm reminded of that SNL skit, you know, the guy that looked in the mirror and said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Uh, that's not God. He doesn't need our validation. He doesn't need our affirmation. He doesn't need any of this. He is absolutely perfect in and of himself. There is no lack in him. So why does he need to be glorified? Well, it's for us. In this world we live in that is so full of heartbreak and misery and cruelty and a lack of genuine love, even though our souls thirst for it, in this horrible reality we live in where we so often end up in heartbreak, we need to know that not only is there a good God out there, but that he is active in the world we inhabit. When the Father is glorified, hopeless people can discover that there is such a thing as genuine hope. Loveless people can discover that there is such a thing in this world as true love. Selfless love. And to the degree that we surrender our lives to this abiding in Jesus, God can use us 
to let others know that the God who is doing this good work in our lives can also do it in theirs. That's why glorifying the Father is so important. The world needs to know that there is a glorious good Father who sent His Son to redeem creation from the nastiness and wickedness and sin that dominates everything. In this is my Father glorified, that you should bear much fruit and bear my, be my disciples. God doesn't want your life to be fruitless. One of the tragedies of human existence is the frightening number of people who are born, live a whole long life, die, and leave behind nothing. They cross the stage of human history and do nothing of any significance. Certainly not anything of eternal significance. God wants our lives to make a difference. He wants us to bear much fruit, to make a huge difference in the world. And he says that this is what glorifies the Father when the fruit that is being born in our lives is the fruit that Jesus, the vine, is producing through our lives. And when people look at that, they say, wait, that's not normal. That's not regular human activity. Something's going on here. And the Father is glorified because only the Father could have caused that to happen in our lives. He says when we do this, we are being his disciples. We're not supposed to fake it till we make it. We are supposed to genuinely be who we are. Be my disciples. And what is the evidence that we are disciples of Jesus? That we are bearing much fruit. Jesus said this in other places. It's kind of the if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck principle. When he's warning about false uh, prophets, he tells them in Matthew 7, 16 through 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. If we are living this life in Christ, if we are abiding in him, his words are abiding in us, then there is going to be fruit. It's inevitable. And the fruit will show that we are disciples of Jesus. He said, bearing fruit is how we live as disciples and how we bring glory to the Father. I'd like to ask you to think about this. How does your life bring glory to God the Father? Let's continue, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and abide in his love, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
Jesus talks about abiding in him, his words abiding in us. And uh, we may misunderstand what it is we're being asked to buy into here. Is God just some really strict rule giver that is uh, really offended anytime anybody has any fun? Sometimes that's the caricature people present of God. The great cosmic spoil sport. The great cosmic finger wagger. That's not what God's up to. What he's calling us to is love. What kind of love? Jesus says, well, here's the love I'm talking about. Just the way the Father loves me. Ponder for a moment. Within the Trinity, one God, perfect, eternal, uh, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bound together eternally in a spotless, immaculate love. There is nothing self-centered about any aspect of the love that happens within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In every way, they are submitted to one another. In every way, they are in perfect unity and unison of intent and purpose and activity. They are perfectly bound in love. And there's nothing selfish, not a hint of it, in any bit of that. Jesus says, the way the Father loves me, that's the way I have loved you. When I say abide in me, I'm asking you to abide in my love. How do we abide in the love of Jesus? We keep his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That means that every single thing Jesus tells us to do or not do is an expression of love. When God says, when Jesus says, do not do this, it's not because he wants to deprive you of joy. We understand this. Any of you who have children, or even if you've been around children, you know that occasionally a parent will say to a child, don't touch that skillet, it's hot. Now, do you think it's because the parent doesn't want their child to grow up to become a great chef? No. You don't want your child to burn themselves and be scarred for life. You look out for them and you issue a prohibition because you love them. It, that means everything Jesus says do not do, it's not him trying to rob you of anything. It's him loving you. That means every time he says, you have to do this, even if you don't want to do this, even when he says, you have to die to yourself, you have to pick up a cross every day and follow after me. It's not hatred. It's love. Sometimes love asks us to do things we don't want to do. Parents, have you ever taken your child to school when they didn't want to go to school? I don't want to. I'm sorry. You really need to learn. And sometimes it's hard, and sometimes you don't want to do what you need to do, but I'm here because I love you. I'm going to help you. Go where you need to be and do what you need to do. And in the same way, Jesus will often ask us to do things we don't want to do. 
only because he loves us. Think about it. What does he ever get out of this? Does he gain anything from my obedience? Am I not the sole beneficiary in my own obedience? He already has everything. He doesn't need me to obey to have it. I'm the only one benefiting when I obey. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And we might say, yeah, well, that's convenient. This kind of, kind of a one-sided love relationship, right? You tell me what to do. I don't get to tell you what to do, Jesus. It might seem unfair, but Jesus says, wait a minute. What I'm asking you to do is what I'm doing. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and abide in his love. You know, the Father had some commandments for Jesus that had to do with love. Within a few hours, Jesus is going to be sweating blood in Gethsemane, pleading with the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. You know what the Father's command was? I'm sorry you don't want to. But love demands that you go. Love demands that you give your life. And I can issue no other command. So Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's asking of us. He's never going to ask us to obey in a situation that's anywhere, anywhere remotely close to the situation he himself had to choose to obey. We're never going to be asked to bear the sins of the world. And if he chose to abide in that love at such great cost, he invites us to discover the joy that comes when we're willing to do the same. Abide in my love. We have to obey love. Now, people call all kinds of things love today. And perhaps in human languages, there is no word more abused than the word love. People use it to justify rape and uh, domination and uh, oppression and to the taking of what you want, the manipulating of another person for your own gain, uh, the, the vanity of having another person serve you. And people have the gall to call it love. But people do. Let's understand up front that what Jesus is talking about here is not that. This is the kind of love that binds the Godhead together. This is the kind of love that leads God to become a man and give his soul up on a cross to pay for the sin of the world. That's the love we're being invited to abide in. We might think, wow, that's, you know, crosses and dying and living for others rather than for self. That sounds like a miserable way to live. When does it get to be about me? You've heard that. We say it all the time. We hear it all the time on TV. It's time to, for me to pamper me now. It's time for me to love me now. Like that's ever been a problem. Like anybody's ever had a problem loving themselves. We've always done that. 
We might think that this is a miserable expense, uh, exp- uh, existence he's inviting us into. But notice what he says. I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete, filled up to the top. As full as it could possibly be. The Bible doesn't say much about happiness. Our society is obsessed with it. Thanks to psychotherapy, we have become convinced as a global culture that happiness is the ultimate goal of human existence. The framers of our nation here kind of wrote it into the DNA of our own country, right? The pursuit of happiness. That's the supreme good. And we have been devoting ourselves to chasing after happiness. And you know what happens when you do that? You don't find it. Have you noticed how elusive happiness is? How ephemeral? How short-lived it is? We all have days like that where everything just happens, seems to click right and we just happen to be in the right mood and the sun is shining just right and everything is working out and it's a wonderful day. How long does it take for that to evaporate? We can't sustain it. We get ever diminishing snippets of it. That's why the Bible doesn't waste time talking about happiness. Happiness is a surface, circumstance-driven experience. We can't control circumstances. We can't manipulate them so that we all, and even if we could, we wouldn't be happy all the time. So the Bible talks about joy. So if happiness is this a uh, tumultuous thing flittering around on the surface. Let's, let's dive deep. And when you get to the bottom where the core of the human soul is, that's where joy lives. It lives in the deep currents unaffected by the surface. Joy, biblical joy, is not dependent on circumstance. It's not dependent on the moment you happen to be living The greatest example of biblical joy is Jesus. You know the moment of crowning joy that we find described in Scripture about Jesus that in Hebrews we're told to emulate ourselves? Let me read it to you. In Hebrews 12, uh, second half of verse 1 and verse 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know why Jesus went to the cross? Joy. As he bore the supreme experience that in all the history of humankind is going to far outshine any other experience of suffering. The the most awful human suffering that will ever be experienced by any human being was happening at the cross. And you know why Jesus was doing that? For joy. 
the joy set before him. What is joy? It's not rooted in circumstance. Jesus was not happy as he hung on the cross. But he had seized on to joy. Joy is rooted in God, not in circumstance. It has nothing to do with what you may be going through right now. Joy is rooted in the core reality of existence that says God is good. God alone is God. And good prevails, evil will not. That is a certainty. That's not a hope in the sense, uh, well, it is a hope. It's like when you say, I hope the sun will come up tomorrow. It's that kind of hope. God has won. Sin is utterly defeated. What happened at the cross sealed it. And this victory, this eternal victory, that is what joy is cemented in. This pursuit of love that is willing to pay any price to obey the command and the law of, of love. That is surrendered fully to obedience to the demands of love. That is a call to joy. To complete joy. Every time you are suffering and you are obeying Christ. Know this. What you're going through right now is only going to be here for a bit. What you are clinging to in the middle of it, that joy is the absolute certainty that this too shall pass. And that the only thing that will never pass is Jesus who loved me enough to give his very life for me. Jesus says, I'm calling you to full joy. I want to share my joy with you. I want to make your joy not just pretty good. I want to fill it to the brim. This isn't a call to a life of misery. It's a call to something much more profound than happiness. Joy. Only God loves with untainted purity and selfless intent. Jesus will grant us to receive and give this perfect love if only we will abide in it. Obey it. Think about your own life. How have you submitted to obey the demands of Jesus' love in your life? And how has this secured joy for you? Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. <coughs> Greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his soul for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So this obedience to Christ, this abiding in him. Uh, Jesus explains to us, what am, what am I after? What do I want you to do? If you're going to obey me, what is the commandment? Here it is. Love one another just as I have loved you. And Jesus uh, reshaped the great commandment. Not the greatest, the second commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. He re reissued that command in a better way. 
Here's the problem with loving the neighbor as myself. I love myself a lot. I love myself more than anybody. That's true of all of us. But uh, that love is not great, is it? Even my love of myself is not the perfect love that leads always to the best and the good, right? So many times my love, uh, even my love of self, uh, is tainted and twisted and is filled with lies and deception and even self-deception. So even if I'm using that as the standard to love others, it certainly calls me to a great degree of love. But it's a tainted love. So Jesus' commandment is that we love one another, not the way we love, but the way he loves. The way he has loved us. We are not loving of ourselves. We are forwarding Christ's love through us. We are receiving something we did not have and then are able to give something we never had to give before. What kind of love are we talking about? Greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his soul for his friends. I occasionally meditate on the implications of the incarnation. The fact that God Almighty became flesh. Some people have such a hard time wrapping their heads around that. They refuse to believe in Jesus just because of that. That uh, that somehow lessens God or, or taints him in some way and that God cannot do something like that. It's hard for us to understand, but uh, when, when Jesus here says one should lay down his soul for his friends, and yes, that's a Greek idiom that basically means lay down your life, but I think the choice of the word soul there is significant. What did Jesus risk in coming here to save us? I may be wrong, and I'm going to say this before I start, uh, and I'll repeat it when I'm done. Uh, this is speculation on my part. But I get the sense from Scripture that when Jesus took on flesh, he accepted in the years of his earthly ministry the limitations of being a human being. So if he wanted to communicate with the Father, he had to pray the way you and I do. And he got hungry and thirsty and he could be killed. He had to learn. He grew in stature and favor with, with God and men the way you and I do. So he, he fully accepted upon himself the limitations of being a human being. I think, if I understand Scripture correctly, that means that he had the option to disobey the Father just the way we do. I think in, in Gethsemane when he wrestled with the cross and pleaded for another way, he had a genuine opportunity to say to the Father, no! I can't, it boggles my mind. I can't even think about it with my, my brain uh, going crazy. What would have happened if God had sinned? What would that have done to God? So it, it could be that when, when Jesus says, I'm laying my soul down for you, he's talking about the, the exposure he placed himself under in accepting flesh. 
Okay, so I'm done speculating. That could or could not be. It could be, and many people would argue this, that God cannot ever categorically sin, and even the incarnation never opened that opportunity. I'm not sure about that. But what I do know, even if I'm wrong about the possibility involved in the incarnation, the danger God puts himself in in the incarnation, even if that's all incorrect, just the bare fact of Jesus in his human existence on the cross, taking upon his soul the weight of the sin of the world, that alone is him laying his soul down for us. He took it all upon himself and extinguished as his own soul took the full burden of all sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And God's wrath burnt itself to a crisp, and the result was Jesus died. He surrendered fully to that. No one has greater love than this, that one should lay down his soul for his friends. You're my friends. I have laid down my soul for you. When Jesus invites us to this journey into love, that's exactly what it is. He has laid everything on the line for you so that you can enter into this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Just as the Son could not abide within the perfect love of the Father without obedience, we cannot abide within the perfect love of Christ without obedience. This love is so great, we must surrender to it to receive it. There's no reception of this love without surrender. Obedience. Jesus becomes the measure of this love. How are we to love one another? We love each other as Jesus has loved us. How did Jesus love us? He laid his soul down for us. That's how we love one another. That's the measure by which we must weigh our own love. Let me ask you, how deeply have you ventured into obedience to the love of Jesus. And let's finish verses 15 through 17. I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his Lord is doing. But I have called you friends, because all that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. Rather, I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. I command you these things so that you will love one another. One of the favorite words of New Testament authors for themselves is slave. Paul loved it. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called apostle, over and over in the New Testament, this term is used, and it's the Greek word dolos, slave. Uh, Jesus uses that word here and says, I'm not going to use this word to describe our relationship, even though it is appropriate. 
And there's, there's a rich usage of the word doulos for us as followers of Christ because Jesus at the cross bought us back from sin and death. We were slaves to sin and death. With his blood he paid the purchase price and now he bought us at the slave auction market and we now belong to him. He is our Lord and Master. The whole call to holiness at its heart is about being set apart exclusively to God, belonging only to Him. That is holiness. So this whole idea that God owns us through and through and He is absolute Lord and Master over us and we are His slaves and belong to Him. Every fiber of our our being belongs to Him. All that is accurate and true. But there's one sense in which the word slave doesn't do justice to our relationship. Jesus says, let me call you friends instead of slaves because a slave doesn't know what his Lord is up to. That's the way our slave-master relationships work, right? The slave is there uh, to meet whatever needs the Lord has and the Lord is not going to share his deepest, most intimate thoughts with the slave. He's not going to ponder what he's up to in terms of the management of his estate and whatever else he has under his control. He's not going to share that with the slave. The slave is just there to take care of whatever functions he dumps on him. But the Lord and his plans and his goals and his whole life and aspirations, the slave is cut out of all of that. Jesus says, that's why that's not the right word. Because I didn't just share with you a little bit of what the Father told me. I shared absolutely every single bit of it. The Bible tells us that God withholds no good thing from his children. Every good thing that God has to give, he gives. God's not holding back anything. And in that sense, he says, slave doesn't quite let you know what I'm talking about. I'm not just asking you to give everything to me. I am giving you all of myself. Now let's ponder this for a moment. If I give God all that I have, And God gives me all that he has. Who is winning in this exchange? Who comes out the beneficiary? Do you understand what Jesus is offering? I've called you friends. I laid down my very soul for you. I want you to know what I'm up to. I want you to be a part of it. And I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. We didn't befriend God. We didn't win him over with our charm and wit. He found us when we were utterly despicable and called us to himself. He says, I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I want your life to produce something that doesn't disappear, but that actually sticks around. I want you to be able to ask the Father anything in my name and for him to give all of it to you. You know when that happens? When we are absolutely centered in Jesus, when we are abiding in Him and our hearts 
are captivated by his love. And what burns within us is the same desire that burns within the heart of God. And we are partners in bearing fruit in this earth. And we can actually be participants and say to the Father, Father, let's do this. And the Father says, that's awesome. Let's do it. Let me grant what you are asking in the name of Jesus. And then as a summary to wrap it all up, I'm commanding you all of this so that this will happen, so that you will love one another. Do you get the idea that love is a dominant theme? Jesus raises us to the status of partners in his work. Friends of God as he does the work of love in this world. Let me ask you, how have you experienced this partnership with God bearing the eternal fruit of love in this world? Abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Jesus calls us to intimacy. He chooses us for intimacy. Even though he is God and Lord and King, he chooses to treat us as friends. He wants to share his heart with us, to love us perfectly. Uh, But not only that, to invite us into that love so that it becomes our love as well, so that we are not only recipients of it, but are enabled to become dispensers of it. We're granted to dive deeply into the very heart of God. He wants to open himself up to us as we open up all that we are to him. And the result will be lives lived in obedience to love. That's who God is. In this ever-deepening journey into love, we're going to find the joy that Jesus experienced as he gritted his teeth and bore the agony of the cross, his eyes fixed on the joy that was ahead. Our own joy will be made complete. We'll become friends of God. And he will grant us the things we ask him as together we do the eternal work of love on this earth. I don't know where you stand this morning. In terms of this friendship we're talking about being invited into, in terms of surrendering your heart and life to this uh, obedience to love. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you have not come to know Jesus in this way. If that's you this morning, I want to ask you to have the courage to just come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to surrender myself to your love and I want to surrender myself to obedience to it. I want you to do in me all the stuff you've been telling me in the scriptures this morning. If that's you this morning, we're going to have a moment where we're singing a song. It's a moment of invitation. You can come forward. I'd like to ask us to stand. And there are uh, two couples that are going to be helping us. 
And if you will go ahead and come here to the front. They'll be on either side. Uh, and we'll try to keep them off to the sides so that you don't have to worry about uh, kind of being the center of attention up here. Uh, but if that's you this morning, you need to surrender your life and heart to Jesus. Do that now. Come forward, share that with them, and let, let them pray with you and encourage you in this. Maybe you already know Jesus and you've just been reminded today that your heart has not been focused on surrendering to this invitation. And you've allowed yourself to become distracted from love to pursue other things. And you want to come back in obedience and say, Jesus, I'm sorry I have uh, strayed. I'm sorry I have walked away from you. I want to abide in you. And I want to be cemented in you. And I want you to bear your fruit in my life. If that's you this morning, come and ask these uh, who are here to pray with you. Whatever else may be going on in your life, you may need prayer for whatever reason. Somebody to partner with you in prayer. Uh, These uh, brothers and sisters are here to help you with that as well. Please come while we sing.